Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. It's the day after the night before Baldy. Ashes mania continues. End of the second test at the home of Cricket Lords. We've got plenty to talk about. So much to talk about, in fact, that we've ditched Raj and Lippy off the pod. Yep. And it is a uniquely Australian and English lineup tonight. One on one. One on one. All coming up on the Top Order podcast, we're going to talk performances from both sides, a look forward to Headingley, and of course, some of the incidents from this game at Lords. Plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about. We'll catch you soon. Mate, so it's... yeah. I feel drained. Honestly, this last 24 hours has drained me. I feel absolutely emotionally drained after this whole conclusion to the second test at Lords, really, honestly. Look, it's difficult to know really where to start, mm. but I think we're going to probably come on to a number of things. So yep. we're clearly going to talk the Australian performance, mm. the, you know, the cricket. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit about England's performance throughout the course of the Test match. We've got to wrap up probably three key incidents yep. as well. Uh, Nathan Lyon potentially out of the series, um, or you know, not potentially. I think he, is, he is out of the series now. Officially yeah. ruled out. Yes, he has been. Um, the Stark uh, situation, mm -hmm. uh, drop or catch, whatever you want to call it. Yep. And then the Kerry Bearstow stumping as well. And um, we'll we'll also have a look forward to Headingley as mm -hmm. well. But yep. look, I, I think in you know the the vein that we've gone with a lot of these podcasts is to really talk about um, sports to the victors and. Yep. Um, Australia, look, from my perspective, played another, you know, really, really good game of, of test cricket, certainly in terms of that batting performance. I would say, without being super one-eyed on this, you guys had probably the worst of the batting conditions throughout the course of the test match. Certainly that first day, you rode a little bit of luck mm -hmm, going through definitely. the first yep. hour or so, the ball, you know, beat the bat, but you'll have days like that and you, you probably earn that yep. right to then bat when it does get a little bit flatter. And then again, you were batting under lights again in that uh, in that second innings as well. A bit, mm. You know, the overheads were, were probably worse for, for Australia. But what do you want to talk about in terms of the, the Aussie performances through the course of the Test match? Well, I think you, you touched on a really important point there, and it wasn't necessarily the difference in this Test match, but it's certainly the difference between the 2023 series and the 2019 series in that Australia were able to get through the new ball. So it might not show on the scorecard, you know, 66 and 17 in the first innings for Warner and Kawaja, and then... I think it's sort of, you know, 70 and 25 in the second inning. So handy contributions at the top of the order from the Australians. But they made partnerships in that um, in both innings, 70 and 60, which they weren't able to do anywhere near close to that in 2019. So that was able to set the tone for Australia and Australia were able to play some some front foot cricket, having been sent in uh, at Lord's on, I think, a day that England would have favoured themselves to bowl Australia out on day one if, if things had have gone their way. So, you know, for Australia to make 416 at four and over, having been sent in, really was able to set them up to play some positive cricket throughout the Test match. And there were some fantastic performances in that first innings. I mean, you have a look, Warner making 66, Kawaja makes his 32nd Test 100, makes 110 and now equals Steve War on that list of of century makers for Australia and and obviously you know Travis Head comes in and does Travis Head things and and yeah. makes 77 so there's lots to like about that Australian innings but it was all set up by that opening partnership and to be able to get through that difficult first hour 
Yeah. I, and look, I think I just kind of noted down as you, you went through some of that, the, the difference for me in terms of that top order performance was, and look, we'll come on to talk about, it, I think in England's um, second or first go at batting, mm -hmm. we were 188 for one or one for 188 for our Australian Thank you. Uh, viewers and listeners, all out 323. Whereas, you know, you were three for 198 um, and then put on, you know, a really, really telling partnership to get to four for 316 and then added another hundred runs for, you know, the, the six wickets that you lost relatively quickly yes but you know, i think we'll come on to it but you know that's the difference in the test match really is your ability to add you know a couple of hundred runs from that position versus england only adding 130 odd from yeah. being in a really really strong a really really strong position how much of that uh, down was was that down to the australian bowling though uh, mitchell start three fers in in both innings and then you know all the seamers really showed up in terms of the wickets column in the in the second innings other than cameron green yeah i mean Cam we'll get on to cameron green because he's yeah. been a bit of a fly in the ointment for this test match for me as far as on-field performance is concerned his dismissal in the first innings was really poor i think if you showed that dismissal at a video review at an a-grade club game and the situation that the players were in, I think that that player would be in for a bit of a, a chewing out from his captain and his coach because at that point, Australia were right on top yep. and there was no reason to play that shot. It just let England back in the match a little bit and gave England a sniff at, what, 300 for... What, 316 for five. For five yeah. at that point, right? Where there was no need. Australia were right on top at 300 for three. Travis Head got out, walked past one to Joe Root, who I thought has been performing really, really well in this test match as a bowler. Yeah, I, 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 Honestly, he is better than a part-timer for England. I don't think they've missed him, so we'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, I think Australia, Mitchell Stark, before, maybe even before the second innings, probably would have come in for some for some criticism for the way he, not leaked runs, but England were able to get after him. But he produced some absolute jaffers yeah. that just showed his value. And, he, you know, like you said, he got three wickets in both innings. Um, he was not the difference between the two teams, but he certainly was able to provide the Australians with something different. And that ball that got... Pope in the second innings was it Pope that was dismissed that's unplayable like that he's able to produce yeah, deliveries that, like that, that's and, getting, and that may, yeah. yeah I mean you, you can probably have a little bit of a uh, a crack at Pope's technique there he's trying to hit the ball probably a touch squarer than yeah that's probably fair. than you would you would want to um but I think that gets a lot of top it order does, players yeah. out at that that speed and and particularly given the fact that Really, the pitch was from a full uh, full pitch perspective. Yep. I think Jimmy Anderson said, you know, part of the reason that even he subscribed and had to get into the the bumper theory was he just said, I, I, I'm not going to get anyone out pitching the ball up. Yeah. Uh, but I think with the, probably with the exception of, of of Mitchell Stark, that was the same for all of the seamers. You know, that pitched up, you know, typical Test match line and length on fourth stump, just hitting a hard. Hard length offered almost nothing to, to the seamers throughout the course. Very, of very little. I mean, Stark got that one to bowl Pope. Um, I think, was it Cummins got Joe Root out with a ball that sort just, of just yeah, straightened just, a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Um, but other than that, really not a lot in it for the For the guys for the hitting all yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and both teams had to resort to a different tactic to be successful. Yeah. Um, in terms of, look, I guess the, the seam attack and the makeup, you, you mentioned Cameron Green. Um, what are your concerns around yeah around his performance in this game? Is it bat and ball? Oh, bat and ball, absolutely. He hasn't been effective in this Lord's Test match with either bat or ball. Um, we'll get on to the Stokes innings, but he was ineffective bowling to Ben Stokes. Um, he dropped a very very difficult chance in the gully, but otherwise, as you know, his yeah. hands have been fantastic. That was a very very tough chance. Um, he might think like he could have caught it, but most wouldn't. 
Um, but it's just it's just his ineffectiveness with the bat and the ball that's that was a little bit disappointing in an otherwise pretty all round solid Australian performance. Um, it's hard to look down that scorecard and look at players who didn't contribute in some way towards that Australian victory. We'll come on to England in a sec. I'm sure you know. We'd like to get your spin on the questions you want to ask about mm. our England performance. But before we do, got to talk probably about Nathan Lyon. So yep. um, limped out of the attack in the first innings. Um, and looked unlikely that he was going to play any further part in the game until he hobbled out to, to bat. Mm. Um, I, I guess, A, in terms of the incident in the context of this game, but B, in con- the context of the series, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, it was an interesting one because England were start not cruising, but England were starting to get on top a little bit when Nathan Lyon got injured. And weirdly enough, it was a catalyst for Australia to take sort of three wickets in quick succession. Um it's a devastating injury for Nathan Lyon. I mean, he was fated in the media and, and in a lot of circles in the lead-up to the match playing his 100th consecutive test and only six yeah. players in the history of the game have ever gone to do that. Um, I don't think any of them were, were bowlers necessarily or spin bowlers. Um, I might be wrong on that. But, you know, he has played every test, I think, since 2013 um, and now in his 100th, te- 100th consecutive test gets injured. He'll be out for the rest of the series um, and will be a big, big set of shoes to fill from Australia from a spin bowling contingent because we do rely heavily on having a spin bowler in the team and one that can keep England under control. I think the implications for the rest of the series are that England are now going to be able to target whoever Australia replace him with. I imagine it's going to be Todd Murphy, who's in the squad, who looks, you know, from his experience in India, ready to replace Nathan Lyon from a skill perspective. But Ashes cricket is, as we know, very, very different to any other series, Um, particularly the mental challenges that he'll be faced with, particularly, again, raise the bar with with how England are playing the series and and how this series has, over the last 48 hours, just exploded into into just another different beast altogether. So these are all hills that Todd Murphy's going to have to climb for the first time if he's the one that replaces Nathan Lyon. But you have a look at England in this test match. I don't think they missed a spinner, to be fair, in in, in terms of what they got out of, of Joe in particular, Australia had um, some success, I think, with Travis Head. He's he's probably slightly better than a part-timer. Um, I saw him compared in, in, in one set of uh, commentary to, to Joe Root in terms of his effectiveness. I don't think he's anywhere near that. I think Joe Root is a much better bowler than Travis Head at this point. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see where Australia go from a selection point of view, whether or not they do include Todd Murphy for Headingley. And I think conditions uh, both overhead and at the ground will, will, will largely dictate where, where we go from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess a word online going out to bat. Your thoughts on whether or that or not that was the right thing to do? Yeah, it's the Australian thing to do. It, well, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I think I don't know Nathan Lyon personally, but I think that he will have listened to medical advice and he would have potentially been given advice as to whether or not going out to bat could have caused further damage to his calf injury and I would have to assume that he wouldn't have been given advice that says you're going to do yourself a real mischief here yeah. if, if you go out and bat and you could really hurt yourself so if he if he wasn't going to do himself any more mischief he doesn't play a lot of white ball cricket so after this he's probably got a reasonably big break yeah. coming up anyway and if it was going to be his last Ashes test match potentially um why wouldn't you go out to bat? Why wouldn't you try and get an extra 10 or 15 runs that could have made the difference at yeah. the end of the day? I mean, the margin was 40. If the margin was 15, you know, there would have been some squeaky bums in that Australian fielding unit and probably in the dressing room as well if Australia hadn't have got those extra 15 runs yeah. at the end of, at the end of the innings. So, look, I certainly won't question Nathan Lyon's commitment to the team or, or his decision-making to go out to bat in that, in that circumstance. 
I would have done the same thing. And I think a lot of Australians would have done the same thing. I don't think if he had had a head injury, I mean, he wouldn't have been allowed to, but if it was something like that that could have posed a significant health risk, I think he probably wouldn't have gone out to yeah. bat. But if he hadn't have got, done any more damage to his calf muscle, why not? Yeah. Why not? Absolutely. But, Border, you want to ask me about my, th- my thoughts on England? I do. I want to ask you about your thoughts on the England performance because there's a lot to unpack here, positive and negative from yeah. the England performance. Let's start with the opening bats for England. Let's start with, with Crawley and Duckett because... A lot was said about them in the lead-up to the match. A lot's been said about the opening partnerships sort of in general. How did you see, you know, the first innings for, for England's Crawley and Ducker and then the second innings as they started to put together, you know, a, a big mountain to climb? Yeah, look, I, I've kind of written on my run notes. I think that the, you know, the Crawley situation's almost sort of gone away. Um, that You know, he's gone out. He's almost in a way... Using the word standard bear is probably the wrong language, but he's certainly the guy that they've wanted to set the tone. He's set the tone, mm. um, I think, in a relatively positive way throughout the course of the series. You know, she'd go back to that first test match. He hits the first ball for four through the covers. Now, look, it was asking to be hit. It was in the, sure you know, was. the right area. Yep. But then, you know, in this game, again, he's come out really, really positively, um, got to 48, um, and then, you know, really, really good piece of wicketkeeping, actually, to get him stumped down, yes. the, down the leg side by Alex Carey. It took a little bit of pad. It was, you know, a, a really, really good take. Um, you know, but at that, you know, at that point, I think he had the license to to do what he was doing, and I think that's a big part of this England batting uh, batting partnership at the top of the order as well. They're given license to go out, and you know, some days they are going to nick off early doors. Other days they are going to put a te- team like they did in this game under you know immense pressure. Uh, you know, a hundred for for one or ninety odd for one when when Crawley was out. Duckett again, like the the stats just keep continuing. He's got, um, I think now a thousand test runs or thereabouts um, at a, an average somewhere in the region or a strike rate, I should say, somewhere um, above eighty five. Look at that test um, average so far. And and yeah, look, considering that he came into the side in, in Bangladesh, I think, and struggled um, then a little bit with a baptism against spin in Bangladesh and India to get to the point now where he's averaging forty eight. Um, you know, he hasn't left a ball since, you know, Christmas 1933 or something like that. Um, and a strike rate, um, particularly in, you know, in this uh, in this Ashes series so far, approaching 100. You know, he had a really, really good test match with that 98. Um, and then again, you, you know, you'd say, I have to say, and we'll come on to it, I'm sure, with, with your next question or, or certainly one of your next questions around the England batting collapse. I think he's probably one of the only guys in that, um, that you can absolve not of any responsibility but he was trying to hit the ball down mm. and it did bounce a little bit more and he did get a little bit of a top edge it wasn't like he was trying to do something yep. that he hadn't been doing relatively successful up until then and then when we kind of fast forward very successfully the way that he played the short ball I thought in the in the second in innings, the second innings. Yep. and I think if you say you know well he's got out twice to the short ball yeah, but he's scored nearly 200 runs. So um, if he's averaging out to the short ball is, you know, 70. is 70 odd, you'd take that going into pretty much any test match, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ben Ducker, uh, overachieving sounds harsh when I say it, but he has overachieved for England since coming into the side, I think. I don't think that when he was drafted into that England team, they expected him to put up 
the kinds of performances that he has for England at the top of the order. And I've got to be honest, at the start of the series, I thought Australia would target Ben Duckett to try and nick him off early because, as you say, he plays everything. Yeah. He plays at everything at the top of the order. And if you've got guys like Hazelwood, Cummins, Stark, they'd be backing themselves to nick him off early doors. But he's been fantastic for England in these first two test matches. I've been really, really impressed. Let's get on to the bouncer stuff yeah. because... England were going well. 188 for one after 38 overs were looking in real control. Yep. Absolute control. Australia changed their tactic. They went short to England. They were very deliberate about their field placings. They were deliberate about where they bowled the ball. They 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 mixed it up a little bit, but predominantly it was short ball, short pitch bowling somewhere between the badge on the chest and the badge on the helmet. Yeah. It, it was it was really accurate stuff. England succumbed to that. I would, I would agree with you that Ben Ducker is, to a certain extent, not culpable for his dismissal. How did you see the rest of it? Well, if, if he wasn't culpable, the, the other guys certainly were culpable. And look, I think we'll come on to it in terms of whether this was an entertaining tactic to watch throughout the course of the Test match for fans on both sides um, of the Pacific Ocean and uh, other oceans in between as well, if you're in England. <laughs> yeah. But um, look, look, I think we look at Ollie Pope was the, you know, the, the first one out in yep. that sort of bouncer barrage, you know, hold out. To, to look a ball that he just really shouldn't have been trying to hit in that area in that fashion um uh, you know then joe root you know again um swatted away flapped away whatever adjective you want to use it was it was abjectly poor from england's best batter over the course of the last 10 years and then you know we come back the following day um and harry brook um uh, what on earth he was trying to do I, I, I really don't know it, it's, uh, someone said and I noticed this from a lot of my YouTube uh, viewing he's been partnered with MLB Baseball this year he's a, I think an um, ambassador for MLB uh, yes, yes. And, and it looked like he was playing for the St. Louis Cardinals to be perfectly honest and, and I think that those guys have got to go and have a really really hard look at themselves and we'll come on to I think a change in England's rhetoric after this test match as we look to preview headingly but the, the thing for me here is that um we've talked a lot about it i've said it privately i've said it on air last week there's a difference between um between you know reckless and positive mm-hmm. um and there's a difference between um you know grinding a side down and being absolutely ruthless and england have missed that trick they have missed an opportunity here to create the positivity that they want to create which they had at one for 188 and then actually just go do you know what we can just take a little bit off this in this session let's see if these guys are going to bowl this theory to us for 10 overs 20 overs 30 overs because by being positive and getting to one one for 188 we've given ourselves the opportunity we've put the time into the game which they keep talking about Mm -hmm. they've done that um, I think they could have just sat in a little bit and, and um, perhaps tired those bowlers out, get them coming back and trying to do the same thing again for a second spell that, you know, the next day. And then when the time is right and Australia's plan inevitably has to change again, then you go and create the chaos you've created in the first 20 overs again and literally go, you know, um, storm, calm, storm, yep. rather than just trying to go storm all the way through the innings. It's going to disappoint listeners and viewers of this podcast greatly, but I completely agree with you in that respect. Both sides tried that tactic and 
it was not allowed to succeed, but it succeeded because the batters fell for the trap. Yeah. Eventually, Kawaja fell for the trap in the second innings. A couple of the Australians fell for the trap. Cameron Green fell for the trap in the second innings really badly. You know, 18 off 70 or whatever it was. Worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And just when you thought he'd done enough work, he undid it all by trying to hit the ball for six. And I think that was the real disappointment with the Pope dismissal, yep. is that he knew where the fielders were and he tried to take them on and hit the ball for six, knowing that they were out there. Um, I, I'm not sure about the root one, but it felt like he, he didn't need to play that shot no, at, he didn't. That, at that point. And I, I wonder if England have learned the lesson from this test match in that if they just respect, and, and I don't mean that word disparagingly, but if they just respect Australia's bowling just a tiny little bit more that they might earn the right to be in that position, that they make Australia work that little bit harder and they make Australia bowl 10 or 12 short pitch bowling overs at them instead of six before they get the breakthrough. And that may make a difference. Australia starts flagging and then England go, aha, now we can score an eight or nine and over again. And that's where they're at their most dangerous. And that's the concern, I think, when we get to the, the, the headingly prep, if that's the lesson that England learned from this test match, Australia's in a bit of trouble because that's the lesson they need to learn, yeah. I think. Look, I, I, again, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I know Stu asked us not to agree too much on this podcast. We'll get but, there. Um, I, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. We've got three, uh, three th pretty spicy incidents to talk about. But yeah, look, for, for me, I don't think they would have learned their lesson if it wasn't for what's happened later in the game. I yeah, think I agree. With you. I think the lesson's going to come from somewhere else. Yep. Um, and I think as a byproduct of that, they'll they'll learn the lesson from the way that they've batted. I do want to just ask you a question about England. Um, and look, you know, feel free to throw throw back. Um, for me but I'm really trying to reconcile this and I can't quite reconcile it and um, a lot of chat going on on a couple of my WhatsApp groups um, with some mates back home around Jimmy Anderson mm -hmm. so um, I think if we look at you know some of the stats that you know you've typically pointed to with Jimmy Anderson in the past um, the ability to bowl dry you know he bowled 20 overs in the first innings went for about two and a half only picked up you know one uh, one wicket um, and then through the course of the you know the Australian second innings um, a little bit more expensive and again only picked up the one wicket and you know to to uh, the point I made earlier on said, you know, he felt almost toothless on this on this wicket, and I think the wicket and the cricket ball, um, these Duke's balls seem to be going really soft, really quickly. I don't think it's going to have, you know, going to have helped. We've already seen a casualty um, in Scott Boland. He got carted all over the place in that first Test match. Would you, if you were an Englishman, have any worry about? Jimmy Anderson's ability or is this a case of don't write a great man off too too quickly yeah I don't think you can write a great player like Jimmy Anderson off it wasn't unfortunately for him it wasn't a surface that is conducive to his style of bowling and unfortunately it just so transpired that he was the most ineffective of the bowlers because when you're 40 years old and you're bowling I don't know how fast he bowls and now I'd say it's probably 130-ish maybe a little bit more than that, 132 maybe, whatever it is, he's not going to be as quick as a Josh Tung, for instance, no. or even a Stuart Broad or a Stark or whoever. So if he's asked to do that job, that's that's kind of not his job. His job is to pitch the ball up, swing it, and use the top two inches of his brain to winkle a guy out at the other end. And if all you've got in your repertoire is the Neil Wagner fallback, 
it's very difficult for a guy like Jimmy Anderson to be able to do that at any stage of his career if he's not constructed in his in his game to do that. So I just don't think it is his herf, is his surface. And if he gets surfaces that are more conducive to the way he bowls, he's still going to be effective. We we know he's still going to be effective. I wouldn't be concerned if I was England. I'd be just asking, you know, can we set him up for better success in the way we set up our cricket wickets, we set up the way that we play. Yeah, and look, I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, of all the seamers, he bowled the, the lit, well, take Ben Stokes out of the equation, who didn't really come on to bowl until um, he had to in that second innings. Mm. Anderson bowled the least of any of the other seamers in that um, in that Australian second dig. So I, I personally am hoping that's indicative of the fact that they are, you know, looking at his workload and headingly typically is a ground where the overheads, if they're on, um, are going to suit him down to the ground. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't want to write him off. Um, but there's, yeah, certainly a couple of my mates back home who have uh, have called for his retirement, even if it's just in our private WhatsApp group. Again, if you're thinking about it from an Australian point of view and they've got the wall plan on the, you know, on the hotel conference room wall and they're looking at, okay, we're planning for the rest of the series. Are they asking, you know, would they prefer to be facing Jimmy Anderson or whoever comes in to replace Jimmy Anderson. And almost certainly it will be, well, we'd rather face the other guy. You know what I mean? So I think it would be doing him a disservice to be ruling him out at this point. Right. We've been quite cordial up until this point. Um, I think it's time to get into two big talking points from from the game. Let's go in chronological order and, and talk about Mitchell Stark so I've written it down as a drop I'm sure you'll write it down as a catch um, but yeah w- what are our thoughts on the way that that incident has has taken place over what was it the third evening of the game I think yeah gosh so much has happened we have to go right back to the third day and it feels like feels like a series ago that that, that happened um, Australia had really no right to be upset at that being called not out because the law of cricket says the player must maintain control over the ball and the body. And Mitchell Stark clearly did not have control over his body and the ball was placed on the ground as, as he slid along. That is not out. And Australia can be um, upset, annoyed at the decision if they like, but it's not out. It's, it's, all, it's always been not out. This is not a rule change. This is nothing controversial. It's just flat out not out. And I'm sorry. That's Bordy, stop oh, sorry. doing that with you, whatever you're doing. Sorry, I was getting, I'm getting, I'm getting nervous, Binksy, and I started, I started playing with something um, <laughs> to, 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 you know, relieve the tension. But it's not out. It's just not out. I'm sorry. You can't, you can't be too upset with that decision. Yeah, look, I, I'm, look, I guess I'm, I'm surprised that you've, you've not sort of brought up, I guess, the fact that across every single game we'd have played in this summer, if that had ever happened, would you have thought there was any conjecture around that in a game of club cricket? No, not at all. And this is the thing. like that That's out 999 times in first-class cricket, in club cricket. You're not looking at it that uh, closely, forensically. Yes. And, and, and this there's is... an example of that. I think Carl Jamieson took a court and bowled where, again, he put his hand out forwards with the ball on the, the floor. That was ruled to be to be not out yeah I guess I'm just surprised the third umpires even you know even looked at this in a a great deal of detail I mean you're absolutely right the the challenge is that this series has got so much scrutiny on it and and we've had catches that you know low catches that have been claimed that have had to undergo scrutiny already in the series so the precedent has been set that every time the ball is close to the ground it's going to get that really really forensic view I think we've been fortunate so far that we've been able to see with a reasonable degree of certainty, the ones that are out 
have, yeah. have been out and the ones that are not out have been clearly, you know, ball on ground. Yeah, yeah. Where it's going to be really controversial is if we get one of those ones where the ball hits the bottom of the fingers and then bounces up into the hand. We yeah. get one of those and, you know, diplomatic relations between, you know, Parliament House and Canberra and Buckingham Palace could be really, really strained. Yeah. If they're not already. Yeah. And look, for, for the record, you know, I think that the right decision was reached based on the, you know, the laws of the game. I, I think if I just reflect on a number of similar type scenarios, it's quite often you will see someone catch the ball in the slips or in the gully. They are rolling, they are diving. And, yep. and, and in the middle of that act, they will throw the ball up in the air yeah. in celebration. Yep. Um, so I think, it, you know, if Stark had caught that ball and then tossed it up in the air, his proximity to the boundary probably means that they'd have, you know, that they wouldn't have allowed him to do that. Yep. Whereas if he was in the ring, there'd have been a, it's a completely different set of circumstances. Absolutely. Which, again, I want to see them now review a slip catch where someone's diving and flings it away yep. because you can say, well, you might have landed on your hand then, so you yep. didn't have control. Exactly. And that's going to create, I think, a dangerous precedent now for us literally checking. Um, Everything. 50% of, yep. uh, 50% of catches. And that's where it's going to get really, really controversial is if a player in the in in the roll or in the in the dive or whatever flicks the ball up in the air before he stopped moving, that will that will create another series of controversy. Look, Australia had no right to be upset at that decision. It was the right decision. Okay. Let's talk about whether England had a right to be upset at another decision in the game. So um England still very much second favourites at this point, but Johnny Bairstow would come out to join his skipper um, at the crease mm. and, and kind of, you know, I guess withstood a little bit of that short ball barrage. Uh, and then he's stumped by Alex Carey. Um, I'll get your thoughts first on this. Well, this is this has been the draining part of today, hasn't it? Really re recapping, and I'm I'm sure you've been the same. Many many conversations about you know was it was out who who you know who was to blame? What's going on? Um, f putting the whataboutism aside, because that's a that's a, a phrase that has, has crossed my bows today for the first time. Um, so the whataboutism aside, the laws of the cricket say that it's out, and. I don't think that there's any controversy in that Alex Carey, in his mind, the ball was live at all times. So he caught the ball, immediately threw the ball at the stumps. He didn't delay. He didn't pretend to you know, throw it to first slip or anything like that. He caught the ball and immediately threw it at the stumps. So the ball is no doubt, in the umpire's mind, live at all times. The, the laws of cricket say that that is out and it's out stumped. And... They they are they are the 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 pure laws facts about about the dismissal and then we get into all the emotive stuff. Is it the right thing to do? Is it within the spirit of cricket? And this is where all of the controversy starts to happen because if this was a club game on a Saturday, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that is as as provided you could get the player umpire to give it out, it's given out every day of the week. If this is a first class game, it's given out. If it's a test match not involving any two other countries, but most other countries, if this is a test match or a one-day game or any other type of game other than a final or an Ashes series, this isn't nearly the controversy that it is. But because it's these two sides and they have history in this match and they have history in this series and they have history going back 150 years, all of a sudden this has all come together to conflagrate into what is being described in the media as one of the biggest controversies in the history of Ashes cricket. Um, to me... It's a storm in a teacup 
in that it to me it was clearly out um we'll get into the maybe the backstory of it but for me it's clearly out it shouldn't be controversial it's within the laws it has been for a long time it's not a new rule it hasn't changed the the parties involved and the media has jumped on top of it and created this massive firestorm of controversy that when you look at it is a regulation dismissal yeah um Look, I, I, I was going to risk an element of my argument by asking you a question. So I, m- I might ask my question of you at the, the end of this. Um, firstly, it's out. Just like the Stark catch it's wasn't out. out. Yep. Th- this is absolutely out. However, I want to put some context to it from, for from it. my perspective. So um, some people who listen and, and watch the pod may know I'm a keeper. This is something I have done many, many times um, when standing back. If you know, if I've thought uh, that someone is batting a little bit out of their crease, um, or there's a chance of uh, a stumping or, or a run out, um, I've been looking for it, and I've certainly had a, a go at the temping bowling. T- normally, when someone's batting out of their crease, or when they continually overbalance after they've played a shot, that's when I'm I'm looking at it. I, I think the bit of context I just want to look at is that they've noticed that he goes for a walk and he goes to garden. So the thought process here is we can catch him doing that. We know he's not trying to attempt to run. We think he's being a little bit dozy. Yep. Um, and we're going to try and catch him napping. So the closest thing that I can actually equate this to in terms of other dismissals that are in the game of cricket is this is the equivalent of a mancad. Because this isn't a stumping opportunity, in my in my in my view. Yep. They have seen him literally evade a bouncer, where he's not lost his balance, but his balance has taken him out of his crease. Mm-hmm. He has then come and deliberately remarked his centre guard with his spike, tapped his bat in, and then gone for a little walk. Um, and that's happened so quickly. And Carey cannot be blamed for throwing the ball back in one motion because he's absolutely done it. But this has happened in a split second. Mm. And so for me, this is like a little bit of a, it, it's it's as close to a mancad as you can possibly get. I only wish it had ha- have happened last week in the first session of the game, because I think that this would have poked a bear in Johnny Bairstow that you don't want to poke mm-hmm. and poked a bear in Stuart Broad, who up until this was, you know, arm round Davey Warner's shoulder during the course of the game. He's now got that little bit of he's nig- got villain da- he's got that Stuart little bit of now. niggle back in him and mm-hmm. um, I think he saw Ben Stokes drill one back at um, I think it was Pat Cummins who dropped a court and bowl chance and Broad was heard on the stump mic he said I suppose you caught that as well didn't you mm. um, and then he's had a little go and you know he said to Alex Carey this is all you'll be remembered for champ I I actually like that because it's got that niggle back and we'll talk about yeah. we'll talk about that but for me it is a, a little bit around the context yeah. of it and it and it is and, and what's my question yeah okay go for it is if i've done that on a saturday in your hibiscus coast yep. two-day side yep i reckon you'd be calling the guy back <sighs> i the pause says it all there baldy i would i would think about it um i don't think i would I don't think I would call him back. Um, I certainly wouldn't call him back if the opposition keeper had had a go in the first innings. So to to complete the context, and to be fair, 
Johnny Bairstow had a go at Labuschagne on day three, the same kind of situation. Maybe not in the same context in that, you know, Manus was maybe, well, maybe Manus was being dozy. Who knows? No, I'd, so that's where I think it was different. I think that that was in the course of having a quick shot at the stumps when a guy was out of his crease. Yeah. He hadn't come back into Marky's guard. Bairstow had done that three or four balls in a row where mm. he'd regained his ground. And then and then wandered. And then wandered. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of, mate, you're being a bit dozy here. Don't do it again. Don't do it again, yeah. Um, and that's why I that's why I equate it to the mancad. The other thing I'd be really interested to hear from our listeners and, and viewers and, and perhaps particularly umpires is, uh, are, they, are they calling over? Or is there a sort of a action speak louder than words as well? Because yeah. when you actually look at the replay again, you see Chris Gaffney at square leg sort of walking in as if the ball's, you know, ball's dead. You, you see the umpire at the striker's end actually unclipping the cap of the bowler. So he's not even looking down at the the striker's end. And um, here's the real challenge, isn't it? I mean, all of this, like the, you're right, in that the man can like equivalent is what's causing the controversy right and you know there are there are without getting into the how about isms there are lots of examples of you know players being run out being dozy or or tapping back and then going you know to celebrate a, a milestone or you know thinking that the ball is dead or whatever there are lots of examples of that in the history of cricket there are examples of you know a player playing a shot and then you know, just after the ball's in the keeper's gloves, just overbalancing a little bit and then, you know, being yeah. being given out. There's lots of different variations on a theme. The reason that it's so emotive is, that one, it's the ashes, and then, two, it is like that mancad situation. So whatever side of the fence you lie on, there's this narrative that you can build up in your mind. Oh, but... England have, you know, England have run out Colin de Gronholm last year and Ben Folkes took um, took a wicket against Ireland. I think it was Andy Belburnie stumped them out, holding the ball in his glove, waiting, 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 and then bang, you know, Australia have, have, have you know, been underarm and 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 uh, the sandpaper gate thing and, and yeah, Australians yeah, are like, you, you fall on this one side or the other of this emotive divide, but and it's so easy to get caught up in that. And Stuart Broad was caught up in it, right? Stuart Broad came out and said to Alex Carey, that's the only thing you'll be ever remembered for is effectively cheating. Whereas he forgets potentially that 10 years ago in an Ashes Test match, he nicked one to first slip and stood there. You know, so you get caught up in this emotion of the game and it gets the better of you sometimes. And the challenge for Australia is that England have far more to gain from getting that emotion, you know, that emotional state up. You poke Johnny Bairstow, you poke Ben Stokes, you poke Stuart Broad, it can only benefit England going forward. And that's a real challenge for Australia, I think, if nothing else. Awesome. Let's move on because I think we could talk a lot of those uh, a lot of those what ifs throughout the course of uh, cricketing uh, cricketing history. It was straight on Twitter that McCollum had done it in a game, I think, against pa- Pakistan. So he, he's been called a hypocrite today. Um, but anyway, let, let's let's uh, let's. Pu- we, we just before we move on because he has done it three times in his career, and he said I think after the third time when Dan Vittori called Paul Collingwood back, actually it was Paul Collingwood. Um, moved out of the way of a bouncer and I think he overbalanced and, and McCullum ran him out in very similar fashion to the um, to the Bearstow dismissal and Dan Vittori ironically who's also involved in the series yeah. as a coach now um, called called Collingwood back on that day and I think um, on reflection McCullum said I think post game or post series that he has not learned a lesson from that but yeah. he probably the, wouldn't the have the of cricket evolves yeah, uh, in exactly. your, during your career yeah so but, anyway Absolutely. Lots, of, lots of controversy, it's out. Okay, Rice. 
let's get on to, to a question and look, I think this will lead into the Headingley look forward as well. There's a lot been said around England's approach to this summer and we'll, we'll definitely come on to that. It's, it's a point I want to make as we lead into the Headingley test match. But was this game entertaining? Uh, it was certainly controversial. I don't think particularly the bowling tactics of either team were particularly entertaining. Um, I thought Australia's bowling tactics, um, excuse the language, you might have to prep the bleeping, they were boring as as, as batshit, honestly. The, the, I don't like watching any bowler run in a bowl bouncer after bouncer after bouncer with six guys back D- on the left side. Don't say that near Raj Reddy or Neil Wagner. No, but it's it's just not it's not as entertaining as as the alternative for me as a cricket fan um and that's my view that's my emotional state and my investment in the game is i find that to be far less entertaining if i wanted to watch that i'd watch baseball because that's effectively what baseball is to a certain extent right you've got a whole bunch of guys in the outfield waiting to take a catch and you're just hoping for a batter to make that to make that mistake where it gets really boring is if the batters have to sway out of the way for six, ten overs and you take away all opportunity to score other than taking that shot into account. I find it to be very, very boring to watch. I wasn't entertained by either side doing it. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think um, throughout the course of this game, it's it certainly kept you emotionally invested. But from a cricketing perspective, I can barely, with the exception of the last day, um, and probably only the last day from when Bairstow came out to bat. Mm. Um, that was the most exciting passage of play in the game. I cannot remember a single passage of play other than that um, throughout the course of the game. It was it was it was dull. Uh, I think the wicket was horribly two paced, uh, and and, I, and that allowed that tactic to be and, fruitful, right? And, 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 and was, I think the cricket ball as well has has really really gone to sleep over the course of yeah over the course of the game, which hasn't helped either. And and the real the real sad thing is that England in particular, and let's let's face it, England have done the vast majority of the work in this space to make Test cricket entertaining to make it fun to watch, to bat at five and over and challenge sides and and do all the things that they do, even to the point where I think the best part of it is that they put four four or five slips in and go, right, okay, we're going to pitch the ball up. You make a mistake, we nick you off. You might drive some through the covers and down the ground. We're prepared to to let you try that. We're prepared Because you'll nick one, right? England went away from that tactic and it was very effective for them and they might learn a lesson from that and maybe dial back the, you know, the baseball dial from 11 back to 8 and and maybe try that tactic a little bit more going forward in the series. But if that is the analytics answer to cricket, then it is going to be detrimental to the entertainment product of Test Cricket going forward. So however we solve the problem, the problem is now here in the same way that there have been problems for cr- in Test cricket for the last five years in terms of all sorts of other things, this tactic of bowling short with the fielders out on the leg side, such as it is, is a problem that cricket needs to start looking at because that is not the future of Test cricket that we want to be watching, particularly if we get a limited diet of it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the Headingley Test match. So this one does come around rapidly. So uh, we're recording this on Monday night, New Zealand time. Wednesday night, New Zealand time. I think the game uh, game starts in earnest. As we lead into that, changes for England. Um, Ollie Pope stays in the squad despite the shoulder injury that he sustained during the course of this Test match. So they've not called anyone um, up. They are getting a scan on his uh, shoulder, so we might, uh, yeah, we might see a change if that has any 
repercussions. But Dan Lawrence, the spare batter in the squad. So no call up for the likes of Ben Folks or um, any of the the wild and bold predictions like a David Milan coming into the side from the start of the, the series. Uh, Matt Potts has been released to go back and play county cricket for Durham. So unlikely that he obviously comes into the reckoning. So Chris Wokes and Mark Wood, the spare seamers um, and then Moen Ali of course still in the squad um, mm. and hopeful that he will yeah he will play a part Australia we've talked about so um, we've got an injury to Nathan Lyon obviously um, but let's look forward to, to Headingley my take on this and I've written it down on the run sheet board is you, at the moment you're just the better cricket side and, and England I think have done okay to hang in and, and, and be in both of these games to, to an extent do, do you see this as do is that how you see things leading this Italian chest and any changes that you, you think you'd see for the Australian team? Uh, let's let's deal with the first one first. I think the teams are probably a little bit closer coming off a like two nil series scoreline than I think you would probably want to admit. Yeah. Um, I think you, you you sometimes you take a, a little bit of a, um, a a pessimistic view of your team as I do of my team very yeah. very much. So I think England have played some really really good cricket in this series, but they've gifted gifted Australia opportunities, and and Australia have been a little bit sort of steady as she goes and have taken those opportunities slightly better than England. Although Australia have done um, a couple of things to give England you know yeah. grabs at grabs at games and so forth. Um, Australia are playing slightly more complete cricket end-to-end at the moment, but England aren't far away. And if they get their attitude, their mentality right, and they have a bit of a, uh, dare I say it, an FU attitude going into this next test, I think they're going to be a different beast and a different level of competitiveness. Um, The question for me is what do England do with their bowling attack? Um, Do they bring Mo Ali back into the side and, and drop one of those fast bowlers out and have three and one? Or do they go with four fast bowlers again have Joe Root or Dan Lawrence come into the side to provide some other options, and then they talk about rotating a like-for-like pace replacement. Does you know 30 te- uh, 30 wicket series bowler Mark Wood come in and get three back-to-back tenfers and fulfil my bold prediction, or do they go with a with a Chris Wokes and and go for a little bit more batting at number eight? So lots of questions for England to answer. For Australia, it's who's going to replace Nathan Lyon. Todd Murphy is a natural like-for-like replacement as an off-spinner who has performed well in his limited test series so far. But Australia have seen a formula for England that, although they've lost the test match, has potentially been quite successful for them in that they've got four pace bowlers, um, they've got a bit of batting that they can inject into that with, you know, Robinson and, and to a lesser extent, Broad. Australia need not three number 11s, but they need a bit of Stark and a bit of Cummins in there to, to shore up the batting a little bit. So I... I wonder if they'll just go, well, you know what? Scott Boland played reasonably well in his career so far. Could he just come in for Nathan Lyon and we play four fast bowlers and we play a little bit of Smith and a little bit of Head and a little bit of Manus Lubbershane and we have our spin bowling by committee and headingly. I don't think that's the best way to go, but I think that's one of the considerations for Australia. And you think that's the way they will go or do you think it's just a like-for-like swap Murphy in for Lyon? I think Australia will pick Todd Murphy yeah. in that they like having a spinner in the team. Yeah. Um, I think he provides a point of difference as Mitchell Stark provides a point of difference. Um, if our only spin option is Travis Head, England can go after Travis Head really, really hard 
And if they belt Travis Head out of the attack, what are Australia going to do? Yeah. Um, particularly if the wicket does take turn. I think Todd Murphy is young enough in his career. Mentally, he's got a huge hill to climb, but he has all the physical skills and he has all of the craft that we've seen so far. I've been really impressed by his craft yeah. as an offie. Um, he has all the skills to be able to combat that. It's whether or not mentally he's going to be able to resist that massive pressure that a fired up Ben Stokes, a fired up Johnny Bairstow and co are going to be able to put on him. For England, Adam, do you think they should make a change with the bowling attack? And is Dan Lawrence locked in to come in if Ollie Robbins, uh, Ollie Pope is, is not able to play? Yeah, look, I, I think he would have to come in um, if Ollie Pope is ruled out of the test match. Um, despite the fact you've got Bairstow batting down at seven, I don't think you can have Bairstow batting at six and then even someone like a Chris Wokes coming in at, at, at seven and that that would be the route they would have to go mm. if they did um, yeah if they did not play that, yeah, that, that yeah. additional batter yeah. so look I think they, they're definitely going to play um, yeah the, the the five specialist batters Ben Stokes and Johnny Best so I think um, whether that's Lawrence or whether that's Pope the question mark for me is whether they do look to get Marin Ali back into the side if he's fit um, or I, I think ultimately it's going to come down to the fact that Josh Tung was probably our most impressive bowler in this game um, there's a you know there's a there's a argument potentially that Ollie Robinson hasn't quite been at the races but I think Headingley particularly if the overheads are there is a ground that would suit him so I think they've got to look into those bowlers eyes and go you know are you guys all up for you know up for a game in, in three days time where you've put a lot of overs into your legs and particularly bowling 40 or 50 overs worth of bumpers at Australia will have certainly taken it out of that attack um, and I think Stuart Broad will be desperate to play I thought he bowled pretty well in this test match Jimmy Anderson I think you saw when he was batting he was getting quite wound up by the fact that you know he even he wasn't sort of reprieved any of the short stuff I think he's pretty pissed off and he'd want to get back out there so I think Stokes will be looking at those guys in the eye and going you know who's really up for this um, who's got that level of uh, level of fire and I think Mark Wood definitely comes into into the reckoning so that that for me would be the only change I would make um, and I don't know who I'd make that change for it would be one of Broad Anderson or Robinson that misses out um, and would coming in for a fresh a fresh pair of legs depending on who you know who's fit and who's raring to go come come Wednesday night at, at Headingley what do you think the selectors will do I'll throw the same question to you that you threw to me you would pick Wood over maybe a Robinson or Broad or Anderson what do you think the selectors will do I think that they will go down that route as well. Um, I, I really do. I think we'll play the. I think we'll play the seamers. I think we'll play Joe Root on his home ground with a bit of off spin if we need it, because I think you know they've seen that this uh, that you know the short ball tactic has has worked to an extent. If they've got some quicker cattle on the field to do that in Mark Wood, I think that would be helpful. If it is a pitch that's again a flat a flat pitch like we've seen the extra speed of Mark Wood through the air. So I think if they can possibly find a way of doing it, um, they'll get Wood in. I think it'll be at the expense of Ollie Robinson if Broad and Anderson both say, yeah, we're good to go because I think the right overhead conditions, they're the guys to exploit them at, um, at Headingley and then the, the express pace of Tong and, and Wood for me is a route that England would want to go down if they've got those two guys fit over the course of the next uh, the next year or two. Two test matches down, three to go. 
Australia need one more win to to win the Ashes in England for the first time since 2001. They need a draw to retain the Ashes um, and as a minimum draw the series. What do England need to do in the next three test matches to win three on the bounce and win back the Ashes? So first thing is I don't think they've got to think about winning three test matches. Uh, I think they've got to think about winning this first test match at Headingley. Um, and, you know, they've said it. We won a series 3-0 against New Zealand uh, last year. We beat Pakistan 3-0. We know we can do that. We know we can go on that kind of run. I think what's been really interesting for me is a change in the rhetoric from England. Um, I heard Brendan McCullum in the first, you know, couple of lines of his press match, uh, post-match press conference said, you know, we've seen two close ken- contests. It's what everybody's wanted to see. Um, I'll just say, Brendan, I love you. I think you've done a great job with my national side, but it's certainly not what I want to see. I want to see England winning. Um, it, this is sports, and that is important to, I think, you could tell from the Lord's crowd, it was bloody important to them. I think it was really interesting then that we've seen Ben Stokes, who at the start of the series says we're not getting too carried away. We're not worried that this is an Ashes series. If we start thinking about this as an Ashes series, it changes our mentality. And then he has said, quote, in these post-game press conferences, this is Ashes cricket. So I think the carry dismissal of Bearstow has poked the bear. It has really riled up the England guys and has shown, I think, that the guys that were in the ground at Lords in the social media explosion afterwards, people, yes, are you know absolutely bought into a positive brand of cricket that at times will be bloody entertaining. But I think they have actually actually flipped to switch now that it's about winning games of cricket that's going to you know enthrall this British public which let's be honest didn't really need to be dragged kicking and screaming to watch England play test cricket we filled our test grounds for the last 20 years so mm. I think they've you know they've subtly changed the rhetoric to be now more focused on trying to win this game at Headingley um, and that for me is going to be uh, yeah look, I think an exciting um, prospect because it's the first time we've heard it in, in the last yeah in the last little while um, versus this it's just another game crap anything other than rhetoric I mean England coming out and punching Australia in the mouth figuratively let's not condone um, let's not condone anyone actually punching anyone um, on the cricket field but England really need to send a message early in this next test match don't they they need to they need to send an, a message mentally and with their body language that they're up for this game and they are ro- they're prepared to get in Australia's face a little bit yeah look I, I think I think they will I think more important to be perfectly honest, is sending a message when they bat. Um, and if they get themselves in a position with the way that they've batted positively throughout the course of this series, which they've done in every innings at mm-hmm. some point, they have created the kind of carnage that, you know, baseball has wanted to create. That The next step for me is not the rhetoric, not the body language, not the posture. It's actually when they get themselves in that position of having created a little bit of chaos, that they then go right now we're really going to make it count um, and we're not going to let Australia have a sniff yes we'll put time back into the game we'll put ourselves in a position to win the game if we need to by a bold declaration or um, you know some funky plans but first and foremost if they've got the opportunity to put the foot on the throat figuratively they do it yeah I, I completely agree with you I think if England were to change anything it's to minimise the double faults in, the, in their service game they, they've just had too many double faults in the first two test matches and if they get fired up Nick Kyrgios style or whoever like whatever analogy you want to put in it Tim Henman anyone like absolutely Tim, Tim Henman 
Wimbledon crowd get behind Tim Henman. If they get behind England, and we know that Headingley can, and Headingley can be a raucous Headingley crowd. Be, will be raucous. It will. They will be giving it to the Australians. So the England need to feed off of that emotion um, and that body language, but they just need to temper it by saying, actually, when we get ourselves into a good position, we really need to capitalise on that rather than try and go for the million-dollar pass. Just keep making good shots, keep hitting the, you know, make the shot that makes the next shot easy and make Australia do a lot more work than they have had to do to win the first two test matches. And in closing, Bordy, what, what about Australia? What do they need to do? They certainly didn't take a backward step on the field today. Um, Pat Cummings was pretty pissed off, I think, in those presses afterwards. He went very insular, went from being the nice, the nice guy, looks as if he's a little bit rattled in those press conferences which after you've been booed for three hours probably gets to anybody yep what do australia need to do leading into headingley they need to mentally prepare themselves to be booed to be the villains they don't want to i i, I draw the line i make the distinction between being prepared to be dealing with being branded as a villain and making yourself out to be a villain i think australia need to be prepared that like it or not the english press and the crowd will be branding Australia as cheats, as villains. They'll be booing Australia, we'll be jeering. They will be making life as difficult as they can for the Australian team. The guys they need to be talking to in that dressing room, particularly a guy like Todd Murphy, is how do you get yourself up mentally for that game? And whether it's talking to a guy like Usman Khawaja, who seems to behave and, and, and act and, and go about his business exactly the same way, like a duck across the pond, no matter what's happening, or whether it's a guy like David Warner that needs to be in a scrap to get himself mentally up to the level that he wants to be at, they're going to need to find their own level individually to be able to handle what the English crowd, what the media um, is going to throw at them over that, he that five days at Headingley. Australia, if they put in five good days of test cricket and they take their opportunities and hold their catches and hold their nerve, could be at three nil up at the end of this at the end of this series and at the end of this test, sorry, and surprise everyone. But they're going to have to climb a massive, massive emotional and mental hill to get there because England are coming at them like a freight train, and they'll have thirty five thousand supporters in the stadium or whatever the capacity of Headingley is, plus all the press box, plus everybody in the you know catering staff and the security guards, and like everybody will be gunning them for them now. So they have to be prepared to almost build that fortress mentality to be able to get out of Headingley with a win. It's going to be exciting to see I can't believe we're talking about it going up to another level but after two test matches the level of excitement is going to another level come Thursday awesome well look let's hope it's a more entertaining game of cricket in terms of a decent wicket mm -hmm. perhaps a ball that doesn't go soft um, a bit more straight play a few more nicks um, and for Stu probably a few more through the gate from whichever spinner might line up in either of these um, two teams no time for domestic New Zealand news um, on the Top Order podcast um, my apologies um, to all of our New Zealand fans Stu and Raj hopefully back uh, next week where we'll dissect the next instalment in this enthralling um, Ashes series but for now it is good night and God bless from us both here in Auckland uh, we'll see you on the Top Order podcast next week good night